Father, thank you for this uh, new day, this opportunity to meet together as your people. Thank you, Father, that every day you speak to us and we pray by your spirit you would um, open the eyes of our hearts and our ears to hear true things from you, that we would be changed. For Jesus' sake, amen. Why do so many people ignore Jesus? Have you ever wondered why the majority of our friends and family, our neighbours and colleagues, just have very, very little time for Jesus at all? We're probably so used to it, but have we ever wondered why? Because when we stop to think about it, it is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Just think over what we've been learning together in Matthew over the last few weeks. Jesus claimed that only he could explain the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He said that his kingdom is the most valuable treasure of all. He said it's the most relevant and life-changing reality in the universe. Under Jesus' authority, people will either spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Jesus said things that really shouldn't be ignored. And yet so many people all around us do exactly that. Some are outright hostile and some are just polite about it. Maybe we had a friend or have a friend who for so long looked so close. We'd had lots of good conversations with him. He'd read some Christian books. He'd been to church quite a bit. He'd really enjoyed it. And we were absolutely convinced the next thing that was going to happen was he was going to ring us up and say, hey, I've become a Christian. But then totally out of the blue, for no reason whatsoever, the, the spark just went out. And we wondered to ourselves, what went wrong? Why did he decide to ignore Jesus? And then we've got another friend, and she's always seemed a very, very long way off. Her lifestyle on so many points was at odds with the Bible's teaching. And we sensed that whenever we sought to share our faith with her, there was an anger inside her heart. And so it wasn't a big surprise when she said to us one day, you know, I just don't want to talk about this sort of stuff anymore. But we still wonder, why was she so hostile? What was going on under the surface of her life to cause her to reject Jesus like that? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet convinced that you are a Christian. You're still thinking about these things. And you can see elements of those two imaginary friends in your life. You're not quite sure why, but if you're honest with yourself, you know that you are ignoring Jesus. Well, I hope that what we're going to look at this morning will be very helpful for you. But if we're already Christians, we don't just think about our friends, do we? We think about ourselves. And we might know that we are very capable of ignoring Jesus too. It might be an unconscious drift over time until we get to a point when we realise I'm not in the same place where I used to be. Or it might be a conscious and deliberate decision to, to shut him out and to ignore him in part of our life. Well, I think our reading is going to help us with those experiences as well because it shows us this common theme. These two halves of this passage are held together by this common theme Ignoring the most unignorable person. We're going to see one lesson from each episode. So let's get back to the action, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Jesus is back in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's the guest preacher in their synagogue for the day. And initially, he receives a very positive reaction at verse 54, 54. Where did this man get this wisdom 
and these miraculous powers, they asked. So you can imagine them sitting there, they're thinking to themselves, we have never heard anything like this before. This Jesus guy is so engaging. I can't stop listening. And it's not just what he says, is it? It's his miracles too. My neighbour was down the road and he, and he says that he saw this extraordinary thing that Jesus did. No one else does the sorts of things Jesus did. What is going on? But then comes the surprise, verse 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. Well, their reaction takes us to our first lesson. Familiarity with Jesus is often dangerous to faith. Familiarity with Jesus is often dangerous to faith. See, the people of Nazareth, they are hearing Jesus' teaching with their own ears. Some of them have perhaps seen Jesus' miracles with their own eyes, or maybe they've just heard about them on the grapevine. But they overlook that extraordinary evidence, and they just focus on his human pedigree. Well, we all know Joseph. He used to have the carpenter shop down the road. His mother Mary, she's still here, as are his brothers and sisters. He is so familiar to us. But their familiarity did not lead them to faith. Where then did this man get all these things, they said, and they took offence at him. The people of Nazareth couldn't stomach the fact that this hometown boy had become such an extraordinary man, a national celebrity who did the most extraordinary things. They put him in a box and they were unwilling to let him out again. And Jesus sees their attitude and he hits the nail on the head with that familiar proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town and in his own home. You see, they will not honour him. They will not revere him. They will not respect him or obey him or be changed by him. Instead, in their arrogance, they are offended by him. In Luke's account of the same event, you might know that the people of Nazareth tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Matthew tells the story in a much more subtle way, but the lesson remains the same. Familiarity with Jesus is often dangerous to faith. And we see the consequences of that danger in the way the episode ends, verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Miracles were a sign that the kingdom of heaven was breaking in to God's world. Jesus, God's king, was bringing God's blessing to all he met. But those blessings only ever came through faith. Do you remember what Jesus said after he healed the centurion's servants back in chapter 8? He said... Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Chapter 9, he heals a woman who's been ill for 12 years and he says to her, Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. But in his hometown, there are no miracles because there is no faith. The people who know Jesus the best miss out on all the blessings of the kingdom because of their over-familiarity with him. See, a person can know all there is to know about Jesus, but have, but have no genuine faith. Because genuine faith means we will respect and honour and revere Jesus, 
But if we're merely familiar with him, we'll always find a way to ignore him. Reading our Bibles, listening to sermons, attending Christian conferences, having Christian friends, enjoying singing Christian songs, attending church, they're all good. But none of those things are substitutes for knowing Jesus personally. The danger with all of those things is that they just make us familiar with Jesus. And if all we have is familiarity, well, we'll just end up like the people of Nazareth, without genuine faith, missing out on the blessings of knowing Jesus as our King. I wonder if we particularly need to learn this lesson. The longer we go on in the Christian life, the more involved in church we are, the more Christian teaching we hear, Jesus can become just a concept in our minds instead of someone we know personally in our hearts. And I wonder also if a Christian culture exposes us to this kind of risk. Maybe that's a danger for friends of ours who have grown up in a kind of generally Christian culture. Maybe it's a danger too for our children. The temptation for our friends or for our children is to have Jesus taped, safely put away over there in his box. We think we know everything there is to know about him. And so as long as he stays over there, he has very little influence over here in my life. And if I or my friend or my child is the one calling the shots, then it's not real faith, is it? It's actually sinful unbelief and rebellion against the king. The people of Nazareth help us to see why some people ignore Jesus. Familiarity with Jesus is often dangerous to faith. I wonder if we need to help some of our friends who are not yet Christians understand that. Maybe it's a lesson we need to teach our children at home. Maybe we need to hear it as a warning to ourselves. Because it's just as true today as it was back then. Well, it's time for a scene change, and it is quite a dramatic scene change, isn't it? We go from a small town synagogue to the palace of a king. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. They look totally disconnected, those two passages, but did you notice how Matthew just gives us a little clue that these two things are tied together? So back in verse 54, they are talking about Jesus' miraculous powers. In verse 58, it says that Jesus didn't do any miracles. And then in verse 2, we hear that John, um, Herod has also heard of Jesus' miraculous powers. But he has his own strange way of explaining them. It is none other than the resurrected John the Baptist. Well, we might be scratching our heads thinking, hang on a minute, I didn't know that John was dead. The last we heard about him in Matthew's Gospel was in chapter 11, when uh, John, Matthew tells us that John is in prison. But now he gives us a little flashback to tell us how John met his grisly end, what has happened since chapter 11. And that flashback takes us to our second lesson. Hostility to God's message finds a way to silence his messengers. Hostility to God's message finds a way to silence his messengers. Verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. 
For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. John the Baptist was a constant thorn in Herod's side. Time and time again, he kept telling the king that his new marriage was unlawful. Well, what was wrong about it particularly? Well, let me read to you two verses. Uh, Leviticus 18, 16. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonour your brother. Leviticus 20, 21. If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. God's word was very clear. Herod should have known that. But on top of all that, Herod has divorced his first wife and Herod has divorced her husband to marry Herod. Sorry, Herodias has divorced her first husband to marry Herod. It's a mess. You see, Herod is the king. And Herod wants Herodias, either for political reasons or maybe simply because he fancied her. And what the king wants, the king gets. But then there's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist just will not keep quiet. Over and over and over again, he keeps saying, it's wrong. Your marriage is wrong. If only somehow Herod could shut him up, get rid of him, then the happy couple could live happily ever after. But it's not that simple. Look at verse 5. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. You see, John was immensely popular with the people around him, but the king's opinion ratings were going through the floor. He was incredibly unpopular. He has a motive to kill John, but he doesn't have the opportunity. He knows that if he just knocks John off now, it's far too risky. That is, until he gets an unexpected birthday surprise. The means and the opportunity to silence God's messenger. Verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Uh, there's a short opera, apparently, called Salome, which is based on this story as told by Oscar Wilde. He uh, may be more cultured than me and have heard about that. And it contains the infamous dance of the Seven Veils. Here's a picture of it. And Herodias' daughter ends up at the end of that dance lying naked at Herod's feet. While well, Matthew spares our blushes, but there's no doubt this is an X-rated, adults-only birthday party. We can well imagine the scene, can't we? Herod has had many, many glasses of the finest wine. His eyes are popping out of his head and he is putting in Herodias' daughter's hands. And she and her mother won't let this golden opportunity pass them by. Prompted by her mother, she says, give me here on a dish the head of John the Baptist. Perfect. Isn't that what Herod has been waiting for, for so long. Why then does Matthew say the king was distressed? Isn't that a surprise? We've got a murderous tyrant, desperate to kill John, distressed and bothered when the opportunity is handed to him on a plate. What is going on? Well, I think it helps if we have a look at Mark's account of the same event. The words for that are on the screen. Let me read to you. Mark chapter 6, verse 19. Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a holy and righteous man. 
When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Now, at first sight, I think this is quite confusing. Who wants to kill John? Herod or Herodias? Does Herod want John dead? Or does Herod want to protect him? Because Matthew and Mark look like they're saying slightly different things. And this might be one of those instances where our friends say to us, hey, the Bible is full of contradictions. Why should I take it seriously? But isn't it true that different authors often write about the same event from different perspectives and with different emphases? So we might read two different newspapers about the same event. They report it differently, but they're talking about exactly the same thing. And that is what's going on here. Matthew and Mark record the same event from different angles. Mark, as usual, gives us more details whilst Matthew paints his story with kind of broader brushstrokes. And when we put those two stories together, we get a fuller and more colourful picture. In particular, we see a king with thoroughly mixed motives. So on the one hand, he likes to listen to John. He genuinely wants to protect him from his murderous wife. At the same time, he finds John to be a thorn in his side. Of course, he'll miss listening to John if John's no longer around, but he knows his life will be a whole lot easier if John is dead. See, in his heart, he is hostile to God's message and hostile to God's messenger. And that is why, in the end, he buries his qualms and he gives the gruesome order. Verse 9 again. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a dish and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Perhaps we can just imagine what was going on in Herod's mind. What will my guests think if I don't pull the trigger? It was a stupid oath, but I'm known as a man of my word. What will my wife think if I refuse her gorgeous daughter? But I know that John deserves better but he's brought this trouble on himself. To hell with the long-term consequences. Let's get this over with. See, Herod's heart is not right before God. He's hostile to his message, and so eventually he ignores the voice of conscience, and he literally silences God's messenger by cutting off his head. Hostility to God's message finds a way to silence his messenger. Well, I'd be surprised if any of us um, knew or are a despotic tyrant's kings. But it is possible for us, isn't it, to follow in Herod's steps. Because whenever we hear God's message, his word to us, we've got a choice about how we'll respond. Especially because the Bible has a habit of making uncomfortable demands on our lives. And we can either accept those demands and those challenges humbly and say to God, please help me accept this. Or we and our friends can harbour hostility in our hearts. We can resent God's influence on our lives through his word until eventually we find a way to silence him and his messenger. When are we in danger of that exactly? Well, I wonder if the danger levels go up every time we kind of hold on to some sin in our life. God's word may be very clear, it was very clear to Herod, wasn't it? That those sinful behaviours or sinful thoughts, they just feel so right 
or so habitual. Their, their hold on us is so attractive or so powerful. So at first sight, we sorry. Uh, at first, we just resent what we know that God is saying to us, and then we start playing off different parts of the Bible, one against the other, looking for arguments to explain away the challenge of God's word. We didn't see it coming. We didn't plan to ignore God's word. But if we're harbouring hostility in our hearts, holding on to that, it won't be very long until we say, like Herod, to hell with it. We bury our conscience and we end up silencing God. Maybe the danger levels go up as well if, if pleasing people is more important to us than pleasing God. That is why, isn't it, that Herod ignores the distress and gives the order because of his oath and his dinner guests. It's so easy to seek the approval of those around us, to look good with the crowd so that we fit in. We know how God wants us to live, but the peer pressure is often so intense, so we join in maybe with the bad language or the gossip or the drunkenness. So in all sorts of ways, we end up living lives that are not distinctive for Jesus. And whenever that happens, we've effectively silenced God. See, when John was still alive in Herod's prison, Jesus said this about him, Matthew 11, 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than thee. Jesus said about John that he was the greatest Old Testament prophet ever. But Herod didn't even listen to him. You see, we can hear the best, most gripping, most amazing preachers in the world. We can read the best, most written, faithful Christian books. But if we're still deep down hostile to God's message, we'll always find a way to silence his messengers. None of us, none of our friends grew up in Nazareth. We haven't actually physically seen Jesus do miracles with our own eyes. We haven't actually physically heard him teach with our own ears. None of us are despotic tyrant kings married to someone we shouldn't be married to with the best preacher ever in our dungeon. But the people in Nazareth in their synagogue and Herod in his palace give us a brutally honest window, don't they, onto the human heart. Familiarity with Jesus is often dangerous to faith. Hostility to God's message finds a way to silence his messengers. These two events that at first sight look quite disconnected show us how a person, how you and I, can ignore the most unignorable person who's ever lived. They're an explanation, but they're also a sober warning, aren't they? Just as we finish, let me point us to what I think is a tiny little glimmer of hope. Verse 12. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. See, in the face of tragedy and grief, what do John's disciples do? They go to Jesus. They must have sensed somehow that from now on, he was the one they had to listen to. And they were totally right. But they were right in more ways than one, because Jesus will take up John's mantle as the preacher, speaking about God's kingdom to his generation. But Jesus will also take up John's mantle to an early execution. Jesus' own death is foreshadowed in John's grisly end. Just look at verse 5 again. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. 
And now listen to these words from Matthew 21. They're on the screen. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him. And now listen up. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Almost exactly the same words to describe John's death. See, they silenced Jesus. But Jesus' death was not in vain. Jesus paid the price for their over-familiarity and for their unbelief. Jesus was punished for the hostility that they had and that we have in our hearts. John wasn't raised from the dead. Jesus was. And so his death is not the end. His death and his resurrection are the way for us to have genuine faith with love and not hostility in our hearts. Let's have a moment to think and pray by ourselves. And then I'll pray. Father God, we recognise that the people of Nazareth and King Herod give us a window onto our hearts. We're sorry when there is over-familiarity in us that doesn't lead us to genuine faith. And we're sorry when there is hostility in our hearts that means we want to silence you and the people who speak to us in your name. Please forgive us. Thank you, Father God, that you love to speak, that you love to change us by your words. Help us to be people who have genuine faith, who are transformed and who have love, not hostility, in our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name.